There's no right to be educated in the Constitution. There's no right to health in the Constitution. There is no right to vote in the Constitution. Until we build those rights into our system, until we build a future where everybody is guaranteed that kind of equity, we are fighting the same battles we've been fighting over and over again for 200 years. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Kirk Chaffetz, is a professional in the area of narrative strategy and storytelling and a former publishing entrepreneur. After working for corporate brands, he has since 2016 turned to trying to help progressive causes and candidates. Kirk believes in setting narrative strategy and telling stories that engage and persuade people in order to drive progressive change. Kirk worked with Tom Steyer's presidential campaign and other substantial clients. Kirk and I got a bit tangled up in alternative interpretations of American history, which might amuse some of you, but then we settled down and Kirk got the chance to talk about his work and what he thinks might improve progressive communications. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Kirk Chaffetz of Kirk Chaffetz Political Narrative. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Kirk. Hi, Nathaniel. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I've been alive long enough that there's hardly any quick biography, but my name is Kirk Schaefus. I, I started out really as a filmmaker and a journalist and at some point transitioned to advertising in an attempt to destroy it by teaching it how to tell stories instead of just make product claims. That actually halfway worked, but I got out of advertising around 2015. Uh, and in 2016, Donald Trump got elected. I declared a national emergency. I, as I recall, I was not alone. <laughs> not at all. And I started uh, you know, trying to combine what I'd learned over 50 years of doing persuasive storytelling both in news and in ads and in films, to help progressive politics. So here I am. Well, maybe I can ask you first, what did you learn over all of that time in persuasive storytelling? What are the main things that you took away? Nothing works quickly. And mostly nothing works at all. If you look at what you know, normal politics is doing, all of the messaging, quote, end quote, 
which is really the political equivalent of what the ad world would do by screaming, tastes great, or we've got the meats. None of that stuff works. Storytelling can be persuasive. It's the only thing that can be persuasive. Hope is far more important if you're trying to change the world than scaring the shit out of people. Scaring people works, on the other hand, if your only goal is to get them to send you $5 to stop Mitch McConnell from taking over the planet or to stop Donald Trump from killing your mama. Fear gets a quick reaction and no long-term benefit. Hope can create a long-term adherent, but in order to really make it work, and this is probably the most important lesson, you gotta put a future story why are we doing this? Why do you want my attention? And what's the world going to look like for me when we win this fight? Please tell me that and you may engage me. If you don't tell me that, I really don't care. If all that is true, then what made Donald Trump as successful in persuading a lot of people to go along and, and adopt his thinking as it did? And as it continues to do. Because Donald is a, uh, he's a great practitioner of exactly what I'm talking about. He had an audience. He understood that audience's fears and hopes. Their greatest hope was that somebody would pay attention to them, for God's sakes, listen to them, and join them in promising a future where their fears and their desires would be addressed. And one of the great things that I like about Trump as a storyteller, not as a human being or a politician, to be clear, is that he really identified with that audience. And if, if you look at him as a character, which is really important in a story, right, is who's telling the story and can I relate to that person or not? Trump, who the media always talks about, the somewhat wishy-washy, quasi-centrist, sort of checking the facts media, let's call it. They kept talking about Trump projecting power. But when you really listen to him, what Trump was brilliant at was projecting powerlessness. He, he never knew what the future was going to hold. His first executive order was we were going to stop Muslims from coming into this country until, quote, we know what the hell is going on out there, end quote. He was as clueless as his audience. He was saying, I don't know what's happening. You don't know what's happening. Let's find out. Let's freeze the world until we find out because there's unknown danger out there and there's nothing I, Donald J. Trump, can do about it. By the way, he kept promising to be powerless throughout his presence. So as a character, he was totally relatable to the people he wanted and needed to relate to. And he had the same enemies and the same friends as them. And the, the government and the arrogant liberal establishment were all part of that list. And his story was you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, basically. I've talked to a lot of people about Trump and his communication skills. And 
I've heard other people say things like you just said, like he's a great practitioner of these techniques. What do you think most people are missing? I mean, there's a lot of people who are impervious to his his message. They can't get past the character. They can't get past the circus. They can't get past the political positions. But what do you think that people like that are missing about his connection to those people? Like I talked to someone who you know recently, Gretchen Barton, and she came out of an evangelical background. And she said something to the effect that when he said something about immigration, there were parts in her that lit up. Like he he pressed the buttons that she had to overcome the feeling of thinking, oh, he's probably right about this with her education and, and the changes that she's made politically. He has a way of lighting up particular categories of people that he does that he that he does by instinct, that he does by practice and getting feedback and testing messages and seeing what works. What are we missing, the people who can't get that about him? As I said, and I think as Gretchen will acknowledge, Donald Trump knew his audience. You and I are not Donald Trump's audience. We labor under under the delusion that facts matter. We labor under the delusion that history matters. We have a certain grasp of, a, of an objective truth, and we care about all of those things. But we're driven, just like Trump's audience, by emotion, primarily. If you take out this regard for facts, this regard for history, because liberals really tend to hold on to reality very, very tightly, and conservatives are not that concerned about it. That's a testable proposition that I think has been proven. But Trump's appeal was totally emotional. It obviously had nothing to do with the facts. That's not persuasive to me. First of all, I get the um, that there was emotion. I get that it's performance, what he does, you know? Yeah. I would also like to say, before you go any further, that I think rehashing Donald Trump is the biggest waste of time that the left could possibly engage in. And I don't want to be perceived as prolonging it. That doesn't mean I won't continue with this conversation. I'll absorb that criticism. But you start off by saying that you entered the political space because you declared a national emergency around him. And this is your area of expertise. So I wanted to explore it a little bit with you. Donald Trump, as I have written about 112 times and told to many audiences, was a symptom of a, a national psychic problem in America and, uh, and a real deep problem with the Democratic Party. He was not the cause of it. Donald Trump caused nothing other than the general degradation of, of the government, which he worked on hard. Now, I understand what you're saying, that like there was a lot of what he tapped in was already there, but he's something different in that if we had elected some other Tea Party conservative who was aligned with him on a lot of things and in tactics, we wouldn't have gotten someone most likely who did January 6th, who wanted to be an authoritarian, who wanted to to change the, the democracy, right? Yeah, but, but his, his differences are immaterial. His differences are differences of performance. I think he made... I think his dangers are profoundly different. I simply don't think so. The forces of white nationalism, the forces of violence, the forces of 
mindless rejection of any established order. Uh, all of those forces are as American as apple pie, to paraphrase Barack Obama, who never stated any of that strongly enough. And they were a reaction to his presidency. And they're, they are, they're rooted not just in race, but in the total failure of the government to solve people's problems. And that's been a downhill slide since the end of the New Deal. I mean, I don't, we don't have to rehearse the history of America here, but Ronald Reagan was a much more, I think, cogent political force leading to this moment than Donald Trump was. And a lot of what Trump built on was 40 years of Reaganism, basically that has worked in persuading uh, the American people to reject coherent communal solutions to common problems and to opt for individualism, particularly among white people and particularly among working people. I do think that Reagan was an ideologue in a way that Trump certainly is not but that to the extent that Trump has certain things he believes strongly in, most of them are not Reagan-like at all. I would argue with that. I don't think Trump has anything he believes strongly other than, other than he should be paid attention to. He certainly believes that we get taken in trade by uh, the world, that he believes that we let too many people into the country. Those are all things. He, he, believes, he, not, he believes nothing of the sort. He's been pretty consistent in those particular areas. And in fact, I think he took he took positions that I think were relevant to him winning. I mean, those were positions that there was political opportunity in, that both parties were basically free trade, and he came in with a probably majority position of not being free trade. Things like that do have consequences. Nathaniel, I think you are so fixated on the details of this one lunatic that you are not paying sufficient attention to the history of America. The important thing, the thing that made Donald Trump possible is that essentially ever since the Declaration of Independence was drafted and the country declared its intention to become a country, and by the country I mean that august collection of white property owners uh, and, and wealthy merchants who represented us. And they talked about, you know, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That all men are created equal and all of this crap, none of which any of them believed in. And since that moment, and since the moment when the Constitution basically said, well, the hell with that, we're, <laughs> we're certainly not going to put those ideas into actual law. We've been feeding ourselves lots of lies, and lots of mythology that absolutely set you up to believe anything, that create a political landscape where literally the truth doesn't matter. You've been taught that whatever anybody says is a story with little basis in fact, and you go from there. I don't read American history that way. I read American history as a progressive path oh, opening, oh, just pause for a second, of opening the electoral process to more and more people, to greater and greater equality among people, to 
incorporating the people who are left out by that flawed founding over time. And that on many uh, dimensions continues to today, allowing gay and lesbian people into full citizenship, allowing disabled people into full citizenship, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, all of those things are progressive empowerment that have happened throughout American history. That's the path that the country's been on, not a path of greater and greater authoritarianism or something like that. You're going to wipe out reconstruction. No, it's not a linear path, certainly. And there's no... Well, you were just telling me about this great progressive path, Daniel. We overcame the, the backsliding after the Civil War. And then... So ex explain to me why black people in the United States make a fraction of what white people earn. Explain to me why black families have assets that are an even tinier fraction of what fine white families have. Explain to me why so many neighborhoods in America are completely segregated. Explain to me why poor peoples and especially black peoples and other communities of color live far shorter lives than white people with comparable incomes and education. Tell me exactly how that fits into your view of this wonderfully progressive America that has lived up to the promises of the Declaration. Well, I'm not saying it's lived up to the promises. And certainly we have a country which people, both black and white and everything in between, where a giant number of people have a tiny portion of the wealth and a small number of people have a great portion of the wealth. But that doesn't mean that we haven't made improvement over time. I Look, I'm, I'm not claiming it's the 17th century. But what I'm saying is that, well, hang on, 200 years later, or depending where we're counting from, <laughs> if we're counting from 1492, it's 700 years later. Uh, but however many centuries one wants to count, fundamentally, we're, we're living with the consequences of having been established as a plutocracy, as an oligarchy. We're also living with a, with the consequences of having been established with very high principles that you've mentioned, that we've hearkened back to over and over. Both of those things are true. High principles aren't worth a bucket of warm spit, as someone once said, unless you do something about them. Even the Bible says, let, you know, let's judge people by their works, not by their words. Our works have been pretty shabby. We've arrived at a point, as you just acknowledged, where the oligarchs are fewer in number and hold a greater percentage of the wealth than at any time in the history of the country. That's progress. I hear what you're saying. And yes, slavery is over. We have certain things that we claim to believe, although the facts are nowhere nearly in sync with our claims of our wonderful beliefs in everybody's rights and dignity. The culture has changed, and I think people have been strong and forceful in demanding changes in the culture. But the fundamental workings of the country, unfortunately, are still pretty much the same, and they've got more to do with capitalism than they have to do with democracy. And at a moment when we're fighting still, right, 
long after the Civil Rights Acts of the 60s were passed, long after the Voting Rights Act was passed and then gutted by the Supreme Court, long after all of this progress is made, if you happen to be my age, if you happen to have grown up in the 60s, this is deja vu all over again. It's a repetition of events before and leading up to the Civil War. I'm not subscribing to any cyclical theory of history. But I'm saying what I hear a lot of people saying, the question, why are we still having this conversation? Why are we still having an argument about women having the right to control their own bodies? Why are we still having an argument about it shouldn't be legal in a democracy to gerrymander a district in order to stop black people from having any voting power? And now we've got new arguments about whether elections have any respect or not. So I see a lot of backsliding, and I see that backsliding based on a history of not being true to the principles that were enunciated in that declaration, to having a constitution that is a paper-thin document that gives almost no important rights and zero economic rights to people. So there is no right to education in the constitution. None of this, by the way, has much to do with narrative. It has more to do with how we read history. But there was a great court case in in Detroit not long ago where some kids sued the school system because most kids in the Detroit public school system are black. And the rate of illiteracy, literally people who can't read well coming out of that school system was exceptionally high. They sued the school system for violating their constitutional rights. And they got to federal court with that lawsuit. And a judge very appropriately said, sorry, there's no right to be educated in the Constitution. There's no right to health in the Constitution. There is no right to vote in the Constitution. I mean, all of these things are simply true. And until we build those rights into our system until we build a future where everybody's guaranteed that kind of equity, that kind of fair chance, we are basically fighting the same battles we've been fighting over and over again for 200 years. Yes, we're making progress, then we get pushed back. We used to have a labor movement in this country. We don't have one anymore. That's not an accident, and that's not because labor unions are corrupt by nature, no more so than big business. It's because the oligarchs decided they didn't want unions protected legally. I mean, you know, we could go on and on and on about this. It may not be productive to go on too much longer. What I'm struggling with when I hear you speak is there's a lot I agree with, and some things I don't agree with, and I also suspect that the position that you take, which is fairly negative on the country, understandably, is exactly what was exploited by the former president who was saying, let's make America great again, meaning let's go back to when we could feel proud of this country, even though we shouldn't have. I would say that there's a line to walk around feeling patriotic, a real patriotism, not a jingoistic one about like some kind of pride in your country that can be challenging politically in messaging. 
That's actually an interesting question. The left has talked a lot about reclaiming patriotism. My negative feelings about the state of the country are feelings about how much we've fallen short from our promise. And they're feelings that I know from a lot of work in the field can only be expressed successfully as a motivator for people by turning them into a positive vision of what this country can be if we all get together and work on making it what we want to make it. I think I'm certainly personally very susceptible to a positive vision. I think that's what made Obama's campaign so amazing, right? Obama did a lot of things right. Unfortunately, I think the the rap on Obama is true, that he was a better campaigner than he was a, a president. I am not a historian or a, a political pundit, and I feel a little out of my area to argue with you about it. I'm, so, I'm not one either. I've just been trying to respond to your questions, which are, I think, better. I, I could give you people who can answer those questions better than I can. Let me ask you this. So tell me about this turn in your career where you move to political narrative, to bringing storytelling into this process. And why did you decide to do that? And how have you gone about it? Well, I think I've always done it. I mean, I, I began as a newspaper reporter. So telling stories about what's going on out there, figuring out how the world actually works and trying to parse what politicians say about how it works by comparing that to reality. That, that's really all I do. And that was all my, uh, my evident anger about all of this really comes from that gap. You moved your profession into this area. I did. I actually had a really good time in reporting. And it, it was, and I, I was bizarrely successful at it. I felt that now that we, you know, that the real power of storytelling was in making things happen, let us say, in motivating people. Uh, and that's the way stories have always functioned in our culture. I also, to be perfectly honest with you, wasn't getting paid a ton of money. When I was a reporter, it was not a star job. It was a grunt job. And I had kids and I had mortgages and I had that kind of thing. So I looked around at advertising and my view of advertising was that it didn't work. But there was this new practice. This is now in the 90s, basically, long time ago called custom publishing that I was beginning to pay attention to where different sorts of organizations were essentially beginning to report news and they were doing it pretty badly. A large corporation approached me. Well, actually, I ran into a woman at a party who'd just been named executive vice president of communications for a big computer company. She wandered over to me. I was then running two different magazines. And she said, I hear you're the expert on magazines. Can you look at ours? And so I looked at their corporate magazine and we later had lunch. And I said to her, well, it's a piece of crap because it's so evidently self-serving and it gives no real information. Here's what you ought to do. And I told her she should put together a real business magazine that actually looked at the problems of her customers 
and how they got solved. Nothing revolutionary these days, but a big deal in those days. And she said, will you help me with it? And I said, yeah, I can pay for lunch. That would be a help. Or you can hire me and I'll put together a staff and give you a magazine. And she did the latter. So that launched me on a career of helping major corporations publish, which, by the way, supported my journalism empire. So I was making a ton of money on the one hand and pouring it into journalism, local journalism, on the other hand, city magazines. So, I mean, that's the way I got started with it. How about as a practitioner directly working with progressive organizations and campaigns and so on? Everything in my life happens by accident. I, I don't know how your life has been, but... I think almost everyone's life is uh, a lot of fortune involved and chance. So I, I had just sold my ad agency and a woman who actually lives in this building here in New York, who uh, has done a lot of work with the Democratic Party, she needed a speaker on brands to critique the Hillary Clinton brand in the wake of the 2016 election. Who was that? Uh, her name's Liz Mann. And, uh, and she's a fabulous progressive storyteller, by the way. After some discussion with Liz, I found myself in front of an audience of about 110 Democratic rollers and shakers and people from the unions and, you know, eight-figure consultants of that kind of political group at, at the SEIU, you know, Union Hall here in New York. And I gave a five-minute thing on the problems with Clinton's campaign, on why it sort of deserved to lose, unfortunately. And my critique of it was that it was all about policy, it was all about facts, and it had absolutely nothing to do with storytelling, that it, it didn't have a narrative worth the name. And my example was that I once saw a teaser online, come click here and see Hillary's great vision for America. And I'm a sucker for great visions. So I went there immediately. And what I found was a web page with a mediocre design that presented to me 41, because I counted them, <laughs> different policy positions linked to 41 disparate but equally boring white papers explaining the policy positions. And there wasn't a vision anywhere in sight. And I strongly recommended to the Democratic Party that they figure out what the world would look like when the Democrats win and tell that story. And I basically have been working on that premise for the past you know, six years, pretty much nonstop. The Alliance for Youth Organizing, uh, with some funding from all over, I think, put together a project to try to see how the Democratic Party could better connect uh, with youth, particularly in the Midwest, where, as you'll recall, Donald Trump, the guy, the guy who got us off track initially in more ways than one, uh, had so much success 
and the party had such a dismal failure just in terms of turnout, which could have made a huge difference in 2016 and did make a huge difference more recently. So, and in 2018 as well. So anyway, that's what we were working on. So tell me about that engagement. What, what? Well, the engagement worked, first of all, because it was led by young people of color. It you know, wasn't led by a bunch of old white people like me in, in New York and Washington. It was led by kids in Chicago and Detroit and Cincinnati in particular. You know, in Ohio and Michigan and Illinois, the states that counted. These were the people who counted. And it, it began with an inquiry into what had gotten them. We went around to the most active young people of color in that Midwest area and said, okay, what got you into organizing? What made you interested in that? And they told us their stories. And out of those stories emerged uh, an approach, which, which was later quite testable. All of their stories had to do with trying to build a better future for a specific group of people, for their families, for their neighbors, for a community or their city, right? The nation was last. That was pretty abstract. But the closer you got to home and the more direct you got and the more positive you were and the more youth-led you were, the better off you were in terms of motivating people to come out. The current narrative, right, the narrative in those days was just vote, right? Jay-Z had just said, you know, it was kind of the Nike, just do it, translated into voting, just vote. But unfortunately, what we discovered was when you said that to kids, their reaction was, hey, I tried that. In fact, people of color have been voting for a long time. We've seen what happens when you vote. It ain't much. It didn't work. We elected, uh, as one woman, this young woman in Southwest Detroit was saying to me, she said, this is what I'm hearing from everybody out in the streets, right? I voted for Barack Obama and my cousin Jose was still in jail and my uncle was still getting deported and I still didn't have a job and healthcare still sucked. And nothing was working. That's what happened when I voted. So you're telling me to go vote? You can imagine what the last part of the retort was. So that was a problem. We found out that by saying go vote or it's your responsibility, that A, we were overlooking the stories inside their heads about, right? We were trying to hook them onto some story that, frankly, that white people active in politics have in their heads that voting works. And that wasn't working for anybody. Uh, And it was actually doing narrative harm. It was discouraging people from voting. Whereas telling stories about being active all the time, doing things for your neighborhood, and making voting just one small but necessary step in that kind of community-centered activism, that worked a whole lot better, like double digits better in converting people. So that was the first one. And I have talked to numerous activists uh, that run groups like Detroit Action or Move Missouri or Isaiah in Minnesota or Block in in, uh, Milwaukee, people who are doing that ongoing activism 
and incorporating some politics into it. And I think that that uh, is a persuasive and probably efficacious way of bringing people into the political process and bringing people in on a local level and making sense on a broader level. I suspect that that makes a lot of sense. Tell me more about like this process that you have of hearing from people. I mean, you're not only being led by them, you are providing a lifetime of expertise to assist in this process, right? What's that interface between your expertise and their local knowledge? So I, over a period of 20 years, uh, working in first in journalism, then in the ad industry and subsequently, but particularly in the ad industry, if you're putting together an agency, first of all, you're used to having an assignment and the assignment is to change people's behavior, whether it's to get them to buy more cornflakes or do whatever. It's, it's very clear what the problem is. That, pro- that, that whole process was missing from politics as far as I could tell. So the first thing was, let's clarify the goal. What do you want people to think and feel, very importantly, and do after their encounter with you? That's step number one. Step number two that you learn from advertising is that the most important question that any you know consumer, any buyer, any person asks of a product is, what's in it for me again? What's this going to do for me? They don't ask what buying margarine is going to do for the country. They really don't care much about you know that broader perspective. You have to start with what's in it for me. And there was very little of that going on in politics as well. So you, trying to adapt to advertising and trying to do a good job at it, but dealing with narrative as the solution rather than product claims... I created and began refining a process that said, first, you clarify your goal. Then you go to the people you're trying to engage with and you ask them in a very open-ended, deep psychological way how they think and feel about the subject area that you're trying to influence them on and then their world in general. And you've spoken with, with Gretchen. And Gretchen, I think, is the best practitioner in politics of the kind of deep research that's, you know, that, that gets at that material. And it's very, very different from focus groups. It's completely different from polling, right? Polling basically asks you to choose among only two choices, neither of which you came up with, right? It's always somebody else's idea that you're either rejecting or accepting. And the choices are always limited. And it's a terrible way, it turns out, to get information about how people actually think and feel. And we've seen the failures of, of polling over and over again in the recent past. But especially if you're if you're going to be telling stories that engage with people, you need to get at their unconscious because that's the level at which our most important decisions are made. And that's the level uh, that polling never reaches and that stories operate on is 
and and let's be clear by storytelling not everything is a story right a story has to have a beginning a middle and an end it has to have an, an arc where something happens to someone and leaves them in this case right one would hope better off than they were before that's the essence of a good political story it arcs into the future where because of things you did life got better for you and lots of other people and it has characters who are relatable to you who you can approach emotionally and who trigger actual feelings not just thoughts of you i mean these are the essences of good stories and these also as it turns out this is the essence of how the brain operates and you really have to pay attention to neuroscience and a bunch of other things but the critical part of it is know the goal know the internal stories that the audience has in their heads that's a big part of the research then you go to the storytellers and they're probably people in some of the organizations that you just mentioned right they're trying to get people to do things that would advance a progressive agenda and so you look at their goals and you get from them some decisions what stories can they authentically tell what stories will they tell because a story that doesn't get told in a credible authentic way is kind of worse than no story at all right you just wasted your time so that's the third step and that's a workshop process that i developed initially and all of this stuff has been amplified and refined by dozens of people in lots of different fields but that workshop process is among the people the partners who you want to tell these stories and you you get decisions from them about tone of voice about what's that narrative arc precisely about the experiences of the people they deal with every day and then at the end of that process that three part deep breath you know what are we doing who's the audience and what are their stories who are the storytellers going to be and what are they most powerfully going to be able to tell where's the intersection between the storyteller's comfort zone and the stories inside the audience's heads is the next part of it and that you have to figure out that's as much art as science but the critical point of that is if i tell you a story about how the world that doesn't intersect your story about how the world works in any way at all it's just going to miss you right you it's not going to make any sense to you it's not going to engage your attention it's not going to influence your thoughts or your feelings so what you're then looking for once you understand the audience and understand the goal and understand all of that other stuff is where are those intersections when you got those you can create something that i call a story platform which is a sort of a little piece of data driven poetry that that says to creators to storytellers here are the parameters here's the the emotional heart of the story we're trying to tell please go tell it in your own way but have it ladder back to this core plot line in essence then you can create content and then you can test that content to see how it moves people but even the testing you know it's got to be a randomized controlled trial 
Some people from a carefully targeted audience have got to be shown nothing. Let's see how they are. You know, if you just show them a Crest commercial, how do they answer this question? And then some will be shown different variations of the stories you want to tell. And you can, from that testing, figure out what's actually going to move people, persuade them. So that's the process. It's expensive and it's lengthy when you do it right. But it also works. It persuades people. Persuasion is almost impossible these days. When I'm just thinking about politics over my lifetime, watching this since the early 70s and, and then reading about it before, and I think there have been some candidates who are very skillful at storytelling. There have been some media consultants who are very skillful at storytelling, who kind of understand some of these things, some pollsters who are very good at their trade, who have a connection to public opinion through the various ways they bring in data about it and about the way they coach campaigns. And I think that there are also plenty and probably a majority of practitioners and campaigns that miss out on this, right? And I don't want to act like the profession of politics is completely ignorant until you came along, which I don't think it was, because I think there's a lot of really smart people in it. But tell me a little more about some of the subsequent engagements you've had and concretely what you've done so that people can understand, like, hey, we had this situation and we came out with this kind of message for this kind of reason. Sure. I think the Midwest Culture Lab is a great, you know, kind of relatable version of that where we helped, I think, set a path where most communications about youth voting now, there's no more, you know, go vote. You, you really don't see much of that anymore. You see these more motivational stories. And I think that's, you know, one powerful example. I got a chance to try some of this with a candidate when I was working for Steyer. Tell me about that. Like, how, how did you get connected to Steyer, who ran an interesting campaign and had, and had infinite money? How did you get connected to that? That must have been kind of a fun one to be on. It was. It was a lot of fun. And I, again, I, I, most of the work that I do is not about a candidate or a, or a single campaign at all. And I think that's one of the big problems with politics. It's about changing the culture. It's about consistently over time doing the organizing and the storytelling that will build an activated audience for a different kind of world. And that, I think, is in, in our current political atmosphere, that's the kind of storytelling that makes sense. The basic political battles are still being fought on, I think, goals that are too short term on policy decisions that miss the mark and on and on. And that's the principal problem. But with, with Tom, uh, you know, Tom really wanted to change the world and he want, and he was not that intent on winning the election. Uh, he was intent on changing the conversation. He really wanted climate to be, a key topic, which it was not at all before he entered that race, and which it I, turned into one. Now, not that Tom did all of that by himself. 
No, I mean, you had the governor of Washington wanting to, it to be lots of, yeah, tons of people, activists. And yeah. also supporting this, the whole narrative about, you know, the rich versus the poor in this country. And how, yeah. how do you Somewhat get ironically. Uh, although the some of the research that was done on how do people really feel about billionaires in America was very, very interesting because it turns out that we badmouth them a lot, but we revere them also. Exactly. Yeah. It's a very complicated relationship, uh, average Americans and their billionaires. But uh, I think with, with Tom, the stuff that tested the highest of any stuff that we did and the place where we really focused was South Carolina because we wanted to make a dent there. And in spite of everything, Tom came in third in South, you know, believe it or not. I don't think anybody remembers that. But Well, he kind of camped out there and spent a lot of money there. Right. He spent a lot of money. He spent a lot of time, but also did some dancing. We a little, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and recruited a very lovely woman in South Carolina who had been kind of the key to Obama's spark in that state as well. We did a, a set of endorsement TV spots that ran in the last couple of weeks in South Carolina. There was a great team working on it, and I was fortunate to get my ideas listened to and to be part of that team. And I said, instead of having simple stuff, right, instead of having them begin by talking about what a great guy Tom Steyer is, we need 15 seconds of them talking about their story. What is it that gives them credibility in this community? Why did we ask them to be endorsers at all? So we want to lead with their story and then transition to why their story made them support Tom. And those, I, I wish I was at liberty to cite numbers. I am not, but, but those testimonies, yeah. What was the narrative that you were trying to bring to that state on his behalf? The narrative was that everyday people really matter. And everyday people are being given short shrift by the political establishment. Is that any different than every politician in the last 40 years? What's different yeah, about that? I, I think so. what's different about it is that we, we were serious about it and we were telling stories about communities that through their own actions had upended the status quo. So that uh, Harold Mitchell Jr., who was a, a figure, I don't know if you've ever heard of Harold, but I he, have not. he was in the state Senate. But more importantly, he organized an effort on the south side of Spartanburg, which was the, the black neighborhood in, in Spartanburg. That neighborhood had been systematically poisoned by toxic dumps and poison producing industries for decades. And literally, the, the time came when people in the community were dying every day because of this pollution, because nothing was done about it, and because there was no health care located in that neighborhood at all. And Harold organized the world so that he brought an effort there to bring in health care, to clean up the toxicity. It was the first environmental justice grant from uh, the Obama administration, actually. And with a lot of government support and federal money, that community got itself, it was an, an indigenous movement that got them, they built their own housing, they built their own healthcare clinics, 
They cleaned up those dumps and it goes on to this day. It's called uh, Regenesis. It's a, a nonprofit. I can certainly see why attaching to something real, inspiring, change-making like that would be helpful. In the short time we got left, I wonder if you could tackle the very big problem at the top the Democratic Party has in selling what we've been doing in Congress, which is quite substantial so far, actually. And if we can just get a couple more senators on board, we'll probably continue to be. There's a lot of a lot of change coming, a lot of investment being made in the country, all in the right direction. What can we do as a party to get that across as compared to what was happening when they were in charge? It's a great question. And I, I think it is the great failing of the Democratic Party that we aren't telling you know, more of those stories right now or any of those stories. And, and haven't been good at that for a, a long time. No, and it, I, I won't go into my long involved theory of what's wrong with the Democratic Party, but, but I do think, first of all, they're wasting a lot of energy continuing to bash Trump. And I think that's wasted energy and it's not gonna motivate people in the midterm elections that are coming up really, really fast. I would advise them strongly to use the lessons that narrative change work has been learning for the last decade or so. And that is tell stories about a hopeful future, tell stories of local communities that have been successful, emphasize the fact that it's people helping themselves and getting help to help themselves. It's not some, you know, powerful force from Washington coming down and we did this for you. Right. No, no, no. We did this together. And Biden has not been terrible at doing that, but he needs to be talking in more specific examples. He needs to be introducing more credible endorsers whose communities have been changed by the victories that he's won. He needs to be emphasizing how People get to live their own better lives better under Democrats, not that Democrats are better. Nobody cares whether Democrats are better than Republicans. In some abstract sense, what they care about is, as I say, it goes back to the what's in it for me. And what's in it for you is a stronger community, the ability to live your own dreams better. That's the powerful stuff. It's not... I'm from Washington and I'm here to help because nobody believes that anymore. Nobody. When you look around at political communicators, whether they're consultants or candidates or other leaders, who do you admire in the progressive world as a communicator? I mean, I do admire Barack Obama, although I think you know he's been undercut by his administration's shortcomings. A lot of the shortcomings are are more a result of running into roadblocks. No, no, I I understand that. But I see, my feeling is that if you said that to Lyndon Johnson, he would have had your neck broken. <laughs> it's like the, 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 that's, his, that's the gig when you get elected president, is to overcome roadblocks. I think that Obama himself offered the best critique of it when he was on with Letterman, if you saw that great interview. And he said, 
Michelle was out telling people stories and I was standing behind this lectern talking policy. That's, that's the real problem. Yeah, I think Bernie Sanders did a great job of articulating an oligarchic vision of America and the ways in which we can overcome it. I think he was deeply undercut by, you know, Democrats, the so-called corporate Democrats, who thought that that was going to lose them an election. And I think a little more boldness in the Democratic Party, a little more future vision, as I keep saying, can go a long way. I mean, Bernie Sanders is not an attractive candidate and he's not a great storyteller, but he actually had a vision and he did enunciate. And you did do extremely well on that basis. Yeah. I Listen, I had I, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I, I wrote a piece once about what a fabulous job Cuomo did during the pandemic because he was, yes, he's a horror show. And the, his numbers in New York prior to the pandemic had always proven that he was a horror yeah. show. I'm but, not, he le- but he led for a while in a flawed way, but but in a but but in a way that was very engaged and and kind of very skillful. Exactly. And he if you take apart his rhetoric, if you take apart those narrative that narrative, right? It was the we're going to do this. He always used to say, you want to know what life in New York is going to be like tomorrow? Tell me what your behavior is today. It's up to you what life is going to be like tomorrow. We have so many complex flawed characters as leaders in this country. It's just human beings. I always do. He was a horror show. I, I won't bore you with local politics, but I actually opposed him around here. What about uh, also from your world, uh, AOC? She's an interesting, she's running into problems now, I think, in New York, just based on her opposition to uh, to the last big infrastructure bill that she voted against that uh, sticking to her principles that she wasn't going to vote for it until the other bill passed. I don't think any any trouble that threatens her in her district, but maybe that might threaten her more statewide. So I, I've been a great admirer of hers, but from the day of her first commercial, uh, which, you know, that, that TV spot, the here's who I am bio TV spot was brilliant. And her story is brilliant. And it really makes an important point too about Obama, because his story, right, that's a story that we could never have dreamed up. That was the ideal story. No, and those and those candidates really used their stories to propel them forward. Right. But but unfortunately it's like Lincoln the rail splitter, you know? Yeah, no, no, that worked too. Uh or Washington the the cherry tree killer. But the the problem with that is it raises up a hero who has overcome, you know, it's another exceptional story that reinforces the exceptionalism of America. And it ain't true for most people. So we, we gather around it and it propels an individual forward, but it doesn't advance a movement as much as we think it should. I think it depends on how much that person connects themselves to that movement and refuses to be elevated in that way to some extent. But I agree. Yeah, I that, think yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And I, I mean, there's a about, way to do it. Yeah. I worry about AOC having really acquiesced in being turned into a celebrity. And in the same way that I worried about Obama, that's why I think the most powerful stories for 
really changing the culture are stories about how you and your neighbors changed the world. And we should emulate you all because all of us have that power if we insist on it, rather than here's how I, you know, Kirk Chaffetz changed the world. So Kirk, what is your aspiration going forward in this practice of political narrative? What would you love to see happen? I really would like to see our research approach accepted by the Democratic Party. And I would really like to see the Democratic Party use it, not just to make their ads better, but to make the party better. Because I think the party's agenda is too policy-oriented and lacks vision. And I think if you want vision, you've got to go to the people. You have to not say you're listening. You have to actually listen. You have to crowdsource that story so that it gives voice to the real desires of the people. And then you've got to follow through and do something real that, that gives you credibility to deliver again and again, and then tell the stories of the people who won because you helped them win. And that would be my greatest desire is that people, ordinary people's voices get raised up, listened to, and acted on. And I think that's what's missing from both parties, frankly, more so from the Republicans. But it's certainly not sufficiently attended to by the Democrats. Well, I think you should definitely be careful to vet which people's voices you're really listening to, as there's a bunch of crazy people out there. But I'm with you. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? Oh, gosh. That's always my last interview question. Uh, it's Dan Rather's, too. not really i think we got sidetracked early on in our discussion by i have the power of editing i might kill that all we'll see (laughs) that would be fine either way i mean i stand behind everything i said i'm just not sure it needed saying i do think that at every step we are too conscious of the the partisan divide in this country and not conscious enough of the fact that there actually are relatively few evil people in the country. I, I agree so with you. Your caution to me about be careful whose voices you, you know, you, whose dreams you listen to. I, in a friendly civil way, <laughs> I reject that advice because I hear I, I've, I've talked to so many people on the left and the right as a reporter. And- yeah, well, in, in general, most people, I think, are quite decent, uh, unless you look at the comment section of any Facebook post. Well, social media is not, <laughs> is not real life, as we know. And I've had conversations with gun nuts in Montana that went really well. I've had conversations with people on the Christian right that went really well. Most people are amenable to decency in a way when you talk to them personally that they aren't in a way when you start pulling the I think that's Everybody who really talks and listens finds that. And that, all I'm saying is that's what we need to, we need to pay attention to those human characteristics because both parties have lost that in this. Some of us, you can't write with a broad brush. There's plenty of people paying attention. 
But if there is a big monolith that you can call the party, we could certainly do better in that area. Thank you for taking the time, Kirk. It's definitely been fun talking to you. Is there anything else you want to say? No, that's I've said too much. I, I have to go pick up a 12-year-old from school, so that's that's causing me to come okay, well, that, That's an important chore as <laughs> opposed to what we've just been doing. So No, it's, it's all good. That was Kirk Chaffetz. Kirk is at politicalnarrative.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.